you've got your Bible, I want you to turn to the final chapter of the book of Amos. We've come to the final chapter, and uh, not the final sermon from the final chapter. got one more, but we're going to cover a good portion of chapter 9 in our time together this morning. I want to look at verses 1 through 10, and we're going to consider one final vision that the Lord gave to the prophet. In these last couple of chapters, we've noticed how God gave a series of visions to Amos, each of which illustrate God's judgment on Israel's sin. What had their sin been? Well, hypocrisy, greed, materialism, perversion of justice. They had developed a false religious system. They were living for the almighty dollar, exploiting their neighbor. The poor were being exploited, taken advantage of. And God sends the prophet Amos, a shepherd from Tekoa in the southern kingdom, God sends him into the northern kingdom to preach against the sins of the northern kingdom. And interestingly enough, society had been prosperous. Uh, There was material abundance in the northern kingdom. There was affluence, but moral um, depravity was taking its toll out on the nation. And so God sends Amos to preach a message intended to wake the northern kingdom up and to announce a judgment that was coming. So in this ninth chapter, Amos is given a vision, not of something, but it's a vision of someone. And it's a vision of the Lord himself as he is meeting out his judgment against Israel's superficial religion. And so when you read these uh, first 10 verses of chapter 9, keep that in mind that God is crying out against the superficial religion of Amos' day. Now, just by way of illustration, we'll read the text here in just a moment, but... There's a tourist attraction in Southern California, the RMS Queen Mary. Maybe some of you have been there. It's about 20, 25 miles out of downtown Los Angeles. Um, But it's docked at Long Beach. And the Queen Mary was originally commissioned back in 1934. At the time, it was the uh, the largest ship to ever cross the ocean. It served as a transatlantic liner. Uh, It was uh, converted into a troop transport ship during World War II and then a cruise ship after the war until 1967 where it was docked permanently at the port of Long Beach and it was converted into a floating hotel and museum. Now, there's an interesting story that during the conversion of the ship, uh, the ship's main smokestacks were taken off uh, to be repainted. But in the process of being removed, they actually crumbled because there was nothing really left of the three-quarter-inch steel plate from which those smokestacks had been formed. All that remained was more than 30 coats of paint that had been applied over and over again throughout the years because most of the metal had, in fact, rusted away. Now, the truth is, appearances are not always an accurate reflection of reality. And it reminds me of what Jesus said about the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. 
he said that they were like whitewashed tombs. Outwardly, they appeared to be righteous, but inwardly, they were filled with corruption. Inwardly, they were full of hypocrisy. And so based upon what we've seen throughout our study of the book of Amos, if we were to try and piece together a profile of the northern kingdom of Israel, we would say that they were religious on the surface, but not righteous within. They had religion, but it was religion that had rejected revelation. They had spirituality, but it was spirituality without substance. They had profession of faith, but it was without possession of faith. The heart of the nation was in the grip of materialism. The routine of religion was filled with play-acting and hypocrisy. We could quote the Apostle Paul and say that they had a form of religion, but they had denied the power thereof. Like the Pharisees of Jesus' day, they followed their own religion while ignoring the weightier matters of the law, such as love, justice, and righteousness. And so really, religion served as sort of a garb, a cloak to conceal their self-centered, self-righteousness, uh, their self-centered way of living. And so this final vision that Amos has given of the Lord, it's one in which God's people are confronted by the fact that as God, he sees through superficiality. And in this passage, God says that he's going to sift out what is false, all while preserving a remnant for himself. So if you've got your Bible open there, let's begin reading with verse number one. Amos writes and says, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, strike the capitals until the thresholds shake and shatter them on the heads of all the people. Those who were left of them I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. If they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. If they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword, and it shall kill them. I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. The Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn, and all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt, who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vault upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaphtor, the Syrians from Kerr? Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. And all the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say disaster shall not overtake or meet us. 
I want to speak from this subject this morning, the end of superficial religion. What we find in this passage is God declaring war against the artificial, superficial religion of Amos' generation. Now, to be sure, we also live in a generation that seems to specialize in all things superficial because we've become experts at saying many things without really saying anything at all. We even get our news these days in sound bites because we won't take the time to read beyond the headlines. Uh, Don't bother us with the facts. Just give me a sound bite. Why is that? Well, it's because we're not interested in probing beneath the surface. We tend to be so very superficial. We live in a generation that's become the master uh, of the art of disguise. But you see, Jesus comes along and he deals with that. Jesus gets very intimate and looks beyond the superficial. He looks far beneath the artificial. He goes beyond the surface to the root. You remember John the Baptist in his ministry announced that Jesus would be like an axe that would be laid to the root. And so often while we're talking about the leaves, worrying about the branches, Jesus is inspecting the root system of my life and your life. And with keen observation, he's looking past the exterior and he's examining the inner recesses of our heart. And listen, a little bit of makeup will not conceal the truth from him. A mask of religion will not cover the true condition of my heart from him. The Bible says in 2 Chronicles 16 that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. God is always concerned with the heart. And so Amos deals with the superficiality of his generation in a powerful way. He's confronting it here. Israel had substituted the superficial and the artificial in the place of what was real. And they were living behind a facade of religion as a means of their security. Uh, One person has said they were religious pretenders living in their own dream world. They disregarded the holiness of God. They were playing a game of religion, using it as a cloak to conceal their own self-centeredness. They toyed around with sin. They believed that God existed for the purpose of fulfilling their own selfish desires But Amos comes along and says that God had entered into their pretend realm and he was declaring war against their spiritual hypocrisy. So from the text, notice a few things with me. First of all, notice the revelation of God's glory. We see this in the first part of verse number one. Amos says, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar. Now, one of the things that we've seen in our study of this book is how all of the events that happened in the northern kingdom relate to a superficial religion that formed the basis of society in the days following the divided kingdom. In fact, it took place some 150 years before Amos, and you can read all about that in 1 Kings chapter number 12, 1 Kings chapter 13. In fact, why don't you turn there for just a second because I want to show you something. The last part of 1 Kings chapter number 12 Uh, The kingdom is divided. Uh, The southern kingdom remains loyal to Rehoboam. Uh, 
Ten of the northern tribes break away and get behind Jeroboam, who becomes Jeroboam the first of Israel. I've told you this multiple times throughout our study of Amos, but one of the first things that Jeroboam did, uh, out of a threat, he felt like that if the citizens of his kingdom would go to the south to worship at the temple in Jerusalem, then perhaps in their minds they might go back to the glory days of the Davidic dynasty. They might think about how things were so good during the United Kingdom, during the reign of David, during the reign of David's son, Solomon. And so to try to safeguard his kingdom against that, King Jeroboam comes up with his own religious system. He has two golden calves built, and he stations these at the southern border and the northern border of his kingdom. But at the southern border in Bethel, he has golden calves erected. He has a sanctuary built, and he tells all of the citizens of his kingdom, don't go to Jerusalem to worship You can worship right here in Bethel. These are your gods who brought you up out of Egypt. And so what you see happening here then in the northern kingdom, Jeroboam, the king, builds a religious system that's really centered around himself. And he does this in such a way so as to consolidate his power over the northern kingdom. So when the scripture frequently talks about the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, What it's referring to is Jeroboam's use of religion as a political means to advance himself. Which, by the way, let's just go ahead and be honest, it's popular for politicians to want to appeal to the religious voting bloc. And very often the the politicians will come and they'll make their promises to those who come from a religious persuasion, but let's just... Suffice it to say, there are those whose, uh, ulterior, they have ulterior motives behind their use of religion. That was Jeroboam. That's what he, so he's coming up with his own religion. He's coming up with his own system. And this system is centered around himself. And the Bible says there at the end of 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 30, that this thing became a sin because the people went to Bethel, they went to Dan, rather than worshiping the way that God himself had revealed in his word. Now, you get into chapter 13, and there's something interesting that happens here. Uh, Verse 1 of chapter 13 says that, Behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. And Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. And the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord, and he said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priest of the high places who make offerings to you, and human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. So no sooner than the altar at Bethel is constructed and King Jeroboam has this religious system built around himself and built around this sanctuary in Bethel, God sends an unnamed prophet from Judah to cry out against the altar there at Bethel. And the prophecy that's given is this. There's going to be a son to the Davidic house, Josiah by name, and he's going to destroy this altar. Now here's the thing. That wouldn't happen for 300 years. 
It'd be 300 years before King Josiah had ever stepped onto the scene. It would be after the collapse of the northern kingdom, after the people of the northern kingdom were carried away into captivity into Assyria, after Assyria had decimated the kingdom. Folks, listen to me. God always keeps his word. God always keeps his promises. Even when it looks like things are not really happening, and scoffers come along and scoffers say, oh, Jesus said he would come, but you Christians have been waiting for his return for years and years and centuries and centuries, but he's not coming. And then suddenly he's going to step onto the scene and take the world by surprise. God keeps his word. But here's the thing, 150 years later, there's another prophet from the southern kingdom that is sent by God to Bethel. This time, it's Amos. And as providence would have it, there's another king, Jeroboam, who is seated on the throne, Jeroboam II. And yet God is reminding the people of the prophecy that had been spoken 150 years before that judgment is going to come to the superficial religious system that had been built around the self. And that's what's being dealt with here in, uh, in Amos chapter 9. Notice Amos says, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar. What's the altar referring to? Well, more than likely, this is reference to the sanctuary at Bethel. But it's not King Jeroboam standing there at the altar. No, it's the king himself, the king of kings, the Lord God who's standing beside this counterfeit altar, and he's doing so in an act of divine judgment. So it's a fearsome sight because he's not there at the altar in an act of mercy, but he's there in an act of judgment, exposing the counterfeit altar for what it is and declaring his judgment against it. And then notice what the Lord says there in verse 1. He says, strike the capitals until the thresholds shake and shatter them on the heads of the people. The capitals were the crowning points on top of the pillars of the sanctuary. Uh, the point at which the roof came to rest upon the columns. The threshold was the stone slab that served as this, really the foundation of the whole structure. And so when the Lord says strike the capitals until the threshold shakes, this is descriptive of a judgment that comes from the top all the way down. God would turn their false superficial system upside down, inside out. The entire counterfeit religion would collapse on itself in an act of judgment. Now here's the thing. Ironically, the people went to the altar to worship in a place what was an altar? Well, an altar was a place where mercy was to be sought through the blood of a sacrificial substitute. But you see, Israel had rejected that, and so this altar at Bethel represented their best attempts to come to God rather than God's attempts to come to them. The altar at Bethel represents the best of man's religion as a means of working his way into divine favor. But you see, that's not, the, that's not the religion of the Bible. That's not the revelation of God's truth. Here's how God said, you're to approach me. You're to approach me through the blood of a substitute. 
I sanction the altar. I sanction the sacrifice. You don't come to me however you please. You come to me by means of how I've revealed. You come to me by means of a sacrifice that I myself have sanctioned. And so that's why God is striking at this altar in judgment rather than mercy because this is man's religion. This is man's attempt here to work his way into God's good graces. And that's always rejected by God. Cain. Cain is the father of all false religion in the book of Genesis. What is it that Cain does? Cain tries to come to God the way that he wants to come, but not how God wants him to come. And all superficial religion, all false religion, all artificial religion flows out of that act of defiance and disobedience. It's centered around man's pride. So Amos here, he sees the Lord standing by the altar, which, by the way, that's the answer to superficial religion. It's an experience with the presence of God himself. You compare what Amos writes here in verse 1 to what the prophet Isaiah also says in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah had an experience where he saw the Lord and the train of his robe filled the temple. He was worshipped by seraphim, the thrice holy God. They declared him to be holy, holy, holy as the Lord God of hosts. And Isaiah comes away from that experience, and here's what he says. Woe is me, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. See, that's the thing. Superficial religion doesn't admit its sin and its need before God, but it wants to hide behind a facade. But when you have an encounter with the living God, all of that is stripped away and your soul is laid bare before your maker. So the revelation of God's glory. Now, notice secondly, the affirmation of God's judgment. The end of verse 1 all the way through verse 6, God simply affirms the judgment that Amos has been declaring throughout the book. And so really what we see in this ninth chapter is sort of the climax of Amos' message. All of it is brought to this crescendo as God is going to deal with their superficiality. And God says that his judgment is inevitable. Those who aren't killed by the collapse of the sanctuary would be killed by the sword. Now sometimes people will come to a passage like this where God is acting in judgment And talking about wielding the sword against someone, shattering these pillars on the heads of people, killing those who were left with the sword. Someone says, well, how could a God of love ever use language like that? And I know you've heard these arguments before, but someone will say, well, the God of the Old Testament is a vengeful, wrathful kind of a God, but the God of the New Testament is a God of love and compassion. And I like the God of the New Testament, but I don't so much really like the God of the Old Testament. Well, friend, let me tell you something. The God of the New Testament is the same God of the Old Testament. And the God of the Old Testament is also the God of the New Testament. And so that's an untrue distinction that cannot be drawn. He is the same God both yesterday, today, and forever. And when he revealed himself to Moses, here's what he said in Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, 
forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And so God is perfect in his love, and God is also perfect in his judgment. And were he not so determined to judge sin for what it is, he would not be a God of love. The love of God is a love for all that is good, and it requires a satisfaction of justice. Because he is God, he is committed to judge all that is not in keeping with his character. And if he were not uh, to do that, then he really wouldn't be a good God at all. When he forgives sin, it's always on the basis of his grace and the satisfaction of his divine justice. Because a price always has to be paid for a sinner to be forgiven. Again, you go back to the Garden of Eden. Uh, man and woman, when they sin against God, they try to come up with their own covering. It was an attempt at atonement. They put together fig leaf aprons for themselves, but that only represented their feeble attempts to deal with their sin, and it was insufficient. No, what does God do before he banishes them from Eden? He has to clothe them in the skins of an animal, which meant that blood had to be shed. There was an innocent substitute who died in order for an atonement to be made. And that, my friend, is the message of the Bible. That points us to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because you see, at the cross, let me tell you what God did with your sin. He didn't just overlook your sin. He doesn't merely erase it from his divine memory. He doesn't just gloss over your sin and give you a free pass. No, God deals with your sin, but if you're a believer, he's dealt with your sin at the cross of Jesus Christ. Because it was there that his judgment was poured out upon your sin as Jesus Christ became your sin. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So at the cross, his divine justice is satisfied while at the same time, God shows mercy and grace and compassion to those who repent and turn to Christ in faith. And isn't that good news? Because this seems to be the tension all throughout the pages of Scripture. How is it that God can be God and deal with the sinner while at the same time being a God of grace and mercy and compassion? The cross of Jesus Christ is the answer because it's only at the cross where God's judgment and God's grace are both clearly seen. So God has to meet this hypocrisy here, this false sham religion here. He has to meet it in the fierceness of his wrath because it does not provide a sufficient atonement for those who try to hide behind it. And so in that way, judgment is inescapable. He says in verse 2, if these people try to dig all the way down into Sheol, God says, there my hand will take them. If they try to climb into the heavens, from there I'm going to bring them down. You can't escape the judgment of God. If I scale the heights of Mount Everest, God says, I'm going to be right there. Or if you sink to the bottom of the Mariana Trench, God says, I'm right there also. You cannot run from his presence. 
Like the words of an old spiritual, oh, sinner man, where are you going to run to? Sinner man, where are you going to run to? Where are you going to run to on that day? I'll run to the rock, and yet the rock will say, I can't hide you. Kind of reminds me of Revelation chapter 6, verse 15. In the last days, during the tribulation, there are going to be people running into the caves and crying out to the mountains and rocks saying, fall on us, hide us from the fierceness of the wrath of the Lamb. And yet there really is no refuge for the unrepentant man or woman. The very one you run from is the one you need to be running to. But you've got to turn from your sin and place your faith and trust in him and recognize your need for his grace. And then notice there in verse number 5 really how they're being reminded by the prophet of who this God really is. They're reminded something about the character of the God that they claimed to worship, but they really didn't even know. Amos refers to him there as the Lord God of hosts. That's his favorite title that he uses for God. He uses it nine times throughout the book. And it speaks of God being the one who commands the host of heaven, who's sovereign over armies. It means that he is sovereign over all. And the point here is that Israel was about to be confronted by the God that they thought they knew, but they really didn't know. They had come up with their own version of God, and they had worshipped that version. That's often what artificial religion does. A.W. Tozer said that the essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of Him. You ever heard someone make this statement and say, well... My God would never do this, or my God would never do that. My kind of God is this kind of idea. And so what they end up doing, they end up creating their own version of who they think God is, and they worship that version. And that's the essence of idolatry. That's what the northern kingdom had done. They had created a God in their own image, according to their own liking, And Amos comes along and is reminding these people of who he really is. As the God of creation, he can melt the earth with a simple touch. As the Lord of heaven, earth and sea, there's no place beyond his sovereign reach. And so superficial religion, he sees past the facade. So the affirmation then of judgment. A revelation of God in his glory. Notice one final thing here, and it's the evaluation of God's people. And God is speaking to his people at this point. Verse 7, he says, Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel? Did I not bring Israel up from the land of Egypt? But God says, I also brought the Philistines from Kaphtor and the Syrians from Kerr. So there's a principle here that's being expressed. Israel had assumed that they had a privileged and special position irrespective of the way they lived. In their minds, they had automatic favor with God simply because they were the ethnic descendants of the patriarchs. We're the privileged nation. We're the nation that got to experience the exodus. God brought our nation up out of Egypt. But God says something here that demolishes their pride and says, are you not like the Cushites to me? In other words, God is saying, I'm no respecter of persons. 
His standards of righteousness apply to everyone regardless of their background. Jew, Gentile, slave, free, rich, poor, it doesn't matter. And God is saying that just because the exodus happened, that didn't get them off the moral hook. Because ultimately, God was responsible for the migration of all peoples. All nations that exist, exist by God's say-so. Are you listening? And so Israel's sitting here saying, well, we're the privileged nation. God would never judge us. And that kind of thinking fostered their hypocritical worship. It led them to take advantage of others and think that everything was okay between them and God when in reality things could not be further from the truth. Now listen, there's an important application here for us because oftentimes someone will appeal to an event in the past or they'll appeal to their heritage in order to affirm their standing with God. You ask them what the basis of their salvation is, and here's what they'll say. Well, I prayed a prayer. I signed a card. I joined a church. My parents were charter members. My granddaddy laid the first brick of that church. I had an experience at church camp. We had our kids at a Christian school. And all of that is well and good, but none of that can be the basis for your own personal salvation. It is only by means of God's grace through personal faith in Jesus Christ that a person is saved. And if such an experience has taken place, it will leave you changed. And Alec Mateer says it so well. He says the distinguishing mark of the people of God is not a historical mark. It is a moral mark. It is a life that has been changed. In other words, it's not some past event upon which I place all of my hope. No, the distinguishing mark of God's redeemed people. It's not racial, it's not religious, but it's righteousness that's possessed inwardly through faith and it's reflected outwardly through obedience to Jesus Christ. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Not daddy's name, not mama's name, not the church's name, not my pastor's name. No, Jesus' name in him and him alone. So essentially what's being said there in verse number seven is that the exodus from Egypt, that was a great event. It was a historical marker. There were special blessings that were possible because of the exodus. But the fact of the event did not guarantee those spiritual blessings. And just because Amos' generation were born on this side of the Exodus, it didn't mean that they walked with God in purity or that they even knew him in a personal way. The historical date on the calendar did not transfer to them spiritual blessing. And in the same way, just because you and I live on this side of the cross, listen to me, it doesn't mean that the historical event itself will give you brownie points with God apart from personal faith in Jesus Christ. You can come to church every Christmas. You can come to church every Easter. 
and talk about how wonderful it was that Jesus was born. And you can talk about how wonderful it was that the cross and the empty tomb and all of that, you can hear the gospel multiple times, but if the truth of it has never penetrated your heart and brought you to a place of personal repentance and faith, then you're no better off than these Israelites of Amos' day. Because superficial religion will not cut it on the day of judgment. God says, my eyes are upon the sinful kingdom. The kingdom of man, the house of cards that man builds for himself. Sinful kingdom, that refers to what the northern kingdom had become due to their unbelief, due to their refusal to repent, and place their faith and their trust in God and his grace. And God says he's going to bring the sinful kingdom to ruin. And yet there's a promise that's made here. He's going to reduce the sinful kingdom and bring it to ruin. But notice at the end of verse 8, he says, except I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. And this ties into really the last few verses of chapter 9, which we'll come back to and we'll look at next week. But by means of his grace, God says he's going to preserve a remnant for himself. How exactly will he accomplish it? Well, verse 9 I'm going to command and shake the house of Israel among the nations, just like one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. See, in those days, there was a process of winnowing grain that involved passing what was harvested through a sieve. People from various parts of the Middle East, even to this day, they use a special tool, a sieve called a gerbal. And it's used to sift grain one final time before it's ground into flour. But the gerbal is a shallow circular tool. It's about two and a half feet in diameter. It almost looks like a, a basket with, with, with burlap in the bottom of it. That's almost what it looks like. But it's used to sift grain in small amounts, both by shaking it there on the sieve and also by blowing on it in order to remove all of the impurities while preserving the kernels of grain. The good grain remains in the sieve while all the impurities fall through or they're blown away. That's the image that's being used here to define this process by which God is going to refine his own. The purpose of judgment is to remove that which is false, well, God is going to save and preserve those who are faithful. He's going to consume the artificial. He's going to consume the superficial. But he's going to preserve the real. And it's a process of sifting. By the way, did you know that God's still doing that same thing even today among his people? He's refining faith, purifying his church, He'll use circumstances and adversity, cultural pressure. He'll often use these kinds of things like a sieve to refine his church. He'll do that in your life as an individual, won't he? Silversmith that he is, he'll bring things to a boil so that the impurity and the dross can be consumed from your life and removed from your life. What is it that God's looking for when he looks upon my life and your life? Listen to me. It's not superficial religion. 
It's not some external appearance for the sake of appearance. What he's looking for is the stamp of his own righteous character in my life and your life. And folks, that only comes by his grace through faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ. So here's the question I would ask you. Do you have the real thing? Do you possess faith? Or do you profess a faith that you really don't possess? And that's a very appropriate question, isn't it? Would you stand with me as we pray this morning? God's promise at the close of Amos is that he will not completely destroy the house of Jacob. He knows full well those who are his. And he will preserve them from a judgment that will consume the false. Because what consumes the dross refines the silver. And you know, God is saying to each one of us this morning, you know, I'm really not interested in your historical past, no matter how illustrious your past may be. It's wonderful that you have a Christian heritage. It's wonderful that you have a Christian mom or a Christian dad. It's wonderful that you've done this and that you've done that. But listen, what I'm really looking for when I look upon your life is the stamp of my own righteous character. I'm looking to see the image of my son, Jesus. Because that's really the only thing that matters, isn't it, folks? Not the superficial. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Lord, we need you this morning. And in a day where superficiality seems to be our default position, whether it be keeping up with appearances, Lord, you're probing beneath the surface. And your eyes are ever upon our hearts. Superficial religion will not stand. It will not pass the test of your scrutiny. And that's the message through Amos. And Lord, that's the message that you have for us this morning. But God, you're looking upon our lives. And the gospel changes us from the inside out. So, Lord, I pray this morning that those who are here in the room or those who are watching online, if they've never by faith turned from their sin and placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, Lord, may they do so today. You and your grace, you alone, are the basis for our saving faith. Not what we've done, but, Lord, who you are and what you've done through your Son. And it's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.